only one that would believe this in here, that the reason for that is a rethinking and a re-understanding of what church leadership is, of what, uh, <coughs> of what our constitution and bylaws should say as a church, and, and then how, so order, and then how do we function in underneath that? Many of you probably don't even know this, so I'll just tell it to you front, uh, up front. We don't vote at this church. We don't vote at this church. If you show up for our annual meeting, there's no voting. Why does there need to be voting? The church is not run like a democracy. Now, if you're like me, and I'd venture to like everybody in here is kind of like gaps in their breath, like what do we do now? Uh, you grew up in a church that voted. You, if you went to the board meetings, you voted. The, the board members voted anyway. They made decisions, and, they, and it was, you know, three eyes and, you know, one nay, and it moved forward. And that was very common. If you can show me where that's the way that God intends His church to be led, uh, from this, then I'll go about the business of changing back to where we used to do. But what we used to do led to a lot of disorder and chaos because it became all about politics. It became all about push and pull and, and who's best at figuring out Robert's rules of orders. I'm way away from my notes. But the, 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 the reason why I wanted to bring this up is, is that it's an order issue. It's an order issue. It's, an, it's a created order issue that was a, a little bit askew and it led to a lot of dysfunction. A lot of dysfunction, heartache, and pain. Now we've healed up from that, and if that hasn't been part of your experience while you've been here, you just simply got a history lesson. But um, for those of us that were here, we can kind of see that progression as it's happened. And how a church operates then will reflect what it truly believes about leadership. How a church operates will reflect what it truly believes about Leadership. I guess I didn't give you my definition on function. So order, God has given us a created order for leadership in the church. When that order is upended or broken down, confusion and disarray are sure to follow. Function then is God has purposed to see that his church carries out his intended plan and purposes here on earth until his return. That's our part of what we do, how we relate to one another, how we lead and how we follow and all of us then coming under that headship of the church, which is Jesus Christ himself. Needless to say, the church there at Corinth was struggling in both of these categories, both in order and in function. And I'd also say this, as are most churches today. As are most churches today. These words that, that the apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down are just as relevant Today, they're just as relevant today for the church as they were the day that he penned them for the church at Corinth. Let's dive into it. Open your Bibles to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. We'll start there and go to the end of the chapter. And we'll do it in some segments as we go. <clears throat> verse 17 says this, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must be also, <clears throat> but there must also be 
factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Uh, there's a verse, verse 19, that's been widely taken out of context and uh, ultimately rears its head out of context in a lot of church arguments. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another one's drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Uh, Ouch. Ouch. The Apostle Paul is jumping right into the function of what the church was doing. And Paul's bringing this harsh critique to what's going on in the church there in Corinth for the way that people were treating one another. That's the function part. Uh, and he says, hey, I, I'm not, I'm not going to blow sunshine at you, <laughs> right? He said, I'm not going to just give you a flowery compliments. You don't deserve a flowery compliment. Like what you're doing is completely out of order, completely upset. Uh, you got, you know, the, the ladies are not following their, their men. Men are not following Christ. We have the example of Christ following the Father. Then when you show up, you know, it's a, it's a you know. A friend of mine used to call, he hated to eat at the Golden Corral. Amen. I have some mixed feelings about that, but I'll go with it. And here's the reason why he hated to eat at the Golden Corral. He called it this. He called it the trough. He called it the trough because you have everybody up there just coming and going and grabbing and reaching and, you know, and, and you're trying to put a, you know, a drumstick on your plate and somebody reaches across you to get a scoop of mac and cheese and it's just this chaos. And he thought it was completely, and a lot of times it is, completely disorderly. And he preferred not to eat there just because it was just so chaotic. And you have that plus on steroids, that and more going on here at the church in Corinth where they would get together and the Paul says, I'm not praising you for what you're doing. I'm going to bring a critique. Like this needs to stop. This type of chaos in the church needs to stop. You're upside down in your order. You're upside down in your function. Let's get it right. And they would have what was called the agape meal, the love feast. The love feast, that's what it was called, where they would celebrate every single Sunday they would get together. So if we would partake in this, every single Sunday would be a potluck. And there's those here that would say what? Amen. And there's those that would stay, and mostly the ladies would say, (sighs) really? Every week? But they would have these love feasts. They would get together and they wouldn't meet here in a central building. They would meet in people's homes or their central location, some which direction, uh, in probably smaller groups. But it was just mass chaos. And it wasn't, it wasn't loving. It's interesting that that's the title. That's what they called them, the agape meal, the love feast. But it wasn't loving at all. And we see that in the text as he goes down through. Some had a lot to bring, some had little. Some were getting smashed, getting drunk, and others were still thirsty. Uh, These first century potlucks revealed this attitude 
they revealed this attitude that it's all about me. That it's all about me. Now, it's not the first time in the Bible that that attitude has been revealed. But it's definitely an attitude and an issue that is uh, common to man. We're all hardwired in a certain way. We're all tempted by the enemy. Or we all have the same draw to the flesh. Or all three at the same time have this tendency to think that it's all about me. Like whatever's good for me, that's what I'm going for. That's what I'm pursuing. That's what I'm about. And so I'm just going to jump in and I'm just going to reach over and I'm going to take something you know, off of John David's plate and I'm going to pull something off of Shauna's plate. And it's all about me because, hey, number one right here. And that was their attitude. Now I know that attitude's not very prevalent in the world today. So we can kind of skip. It's definitely prevalent in the world today. It's definitely present uh, in modern Christianity. Uh, we have these temptation uh, and um, I wouldn't say they're temptation. Maybe they're temptations, but they're, we have these factors kind of leaning into us, and that's this, is that modern Christianity's really been demographed to death. We've been demographed to death, and we see, we see our faith we see the world around us. We see our country, what's going on in our country. We see things through a particular prism that looks this way. Uh, we see it somewhat statistically in a sense that the world's watching, the politicians are watching, world leaders, one another, the rest of everybody is watching. They're watching how we spend our money. They're watching who we vote for, who, what we stand for, what we're against, what we support. Uh, well, these are not bad things, and we need to engage in this sense, um, <clears throat> and we should. We should be promoting biblical values in all of these categories. Uh, but all of these categories have a tendency to promote this idea of it's me first. Like, if we could just get more people to think this way, we, you know, and it's then it's easier for me, or you know, it's better for me, and it's all about me. Right? Modern church has largely been set up around this ideal, and here's where it really comes out. And we've really seen it, we've really seen it over the last 24 months, two years. We've really seen this ideal, and that is consumer Christianity. That Christianity, that what church is about, is to create a service for the people that show up. Now I know I'm stepping on some toes. But the reality is, is that's how people think. That's how people think. That's how we're kind of conditioned to think. That's how we're kind of trained to think. That's how we're kind of, you know, herded into, you know, thought pens of understanding what the church is about and, and who it's for. And, and let's face it, we've all been there, and I put myself right out in a chair with everybody else that I've walked out of church multiple times, and what's the thought that goes through my mind? Well, I didn't get anything out of that. As if being here is all about what the takeaway is and is it good for me or is it bad for me? Is it good for me or is it bad for me? Now, I will say, I'm, I pray every morning, uh, every Sunday morning specifically, that God meets you here, that you experience God in a fresh and a new way, that He speaks to you through His Holy Spirit, that the, your... Uh, Opportunity to come together and worship together is encouraging and uplifting as you join together 
in song and in voice to worship the Lord, that those are all special things. And there should be some takeaway from church. But if the mindset is that I'm coming as a consumer and if I don't get what I like or get what I want or get what I prefer, then I'm going to start shopping somewhere else, then we've fallen into that me first trap. We've fallen into that uh, my, you know, my thoughts, my feelings, what I need is not being met. It's not being, uh, it's not being fulfilled. And that's a me first trap. And the Apostle Paul is coming right against this me first attitude in the Corinthian church. How they were treating one another was reflecting this attitude. We have to realize, point number one, uh, we have to realize it's not about you. Coming together as church is not about your likes or dislikes. It's not uh, at all. I mean, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we shouldn't receive and, and be blessed uh, and take away something, for sure. I believe we should. Primarily, your coming to church is to participate in the body of Christ. And the Bible says is that each of us come with something to give. Each of us come with something to offer. Each of us come with, uh, Ephesians says, a song, hymn, or a spiritual song. Each of us comes with, with something. So our coming together is not about coming with the mindset of a consumer, but our coming together really Really, biblically, our coming together is with the mindset of a producer. We should be producing something. We should be offering something. And that's why what happens before the worship begins and what happens after the last song, I say this often, is actually just as important, if not more important, than the quality of the sound, you know, or even sometimes the message. Because how you guys function and interact with one another, and there's groups over here that are praying together, and somebody wants to step in the office and, and work something out because there's conflict, and, and so if, if Phil and I are you know, embroiled in some little tiff, you know, that, that we need to get aside. We need to function well because we're in conflict. We need to get aside and we need to work it out. And so oftentimes people will be in here. They'll be in the back room. You know, they'll take the other office. And there's tons and tons and tons of ministry that happens, that happens. It's a beautiful thing to watch. It's a beautiful thing to engage in. We should be doing more of it, a lot more of it. We're not here to consume so much as we're here to produce. Our call, our duty, our function really is to focus on God. It's not about us. It's to focus on the Lord, to worship Him, to lift Him up, to promote Him, to encourage one another to do the same. And if we do these things for ourselves and for our own benefit, we really, we really miss the point. We really miss the point. And here's what happens, unfortunately, and there's a beautiful picture of it in Malachi chapter 1. Here's what happens when we miss the point. The authenticity and the pureness of our participation and our worship our participation as a body is really, it's this, it gets compromised. It gets compromised. I want to read from you. I'll just go through it real quick. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. <clears throat> just notice the, uh, just notice the, uh, the position that, that God describes the people in, including leadership here. 
Just notice how distant they seem from God. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I'm the father, where is my honor? So God's already questioning, like, are the people really here to worship me? And if I'm the master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To the priest who despised my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food to my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. In other words, he's saying, hey, <clears throat> you're bringing broken sacrifice here. There's a, there's a problem in the midst of the congregation. You're bringing these broken, these lame. We, they're supposed to bring the best. We're supposed to bring our best here to worship God. That's not a consumer mentality. We're supposed to bring our best. He says, hey, God says, offer it to, the, offer it to your civil leadership. Would they be pleased with you, he says in the middle of verse 8. Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to you. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the door so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles in every place. Incense shall be offered in my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So God tells him right there in Malachi, hey, you're all about you, and you coming together really should be all about me, not you. It should be all about me. And so because you're all about you, God says to him here in Malachi chapter 1, I'm taking it out. I'm taking the word out to the Gentiles. For the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be, pray, be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. It's hard to give a pure offering when we're focused on ourselves. And the Corinthians church really struggled with this me-centered culture. They really struggled with it. It's not new to them. It's right here in the Old Testament as well, and it's repugnant to God. So what's the antidote? The question is, what's the antidote and the answer for selfishness inside the church? Uh, The straightforwardly, the answer, Sunday school answer, but the right answer is it's a Jesus focus. It's a Jesus focus. So that's where the Apostle Paul takes the Corinthians church next. He says, hey, quit focusing on you and, and how good or bad things are going for you and focus on the Lord. Focus on Christ himself. He says in verse 23, back to 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance 
of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 26 is in your bulletin. Twice in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul makes these emphatic statements about what he's received from the Lord and passed on to the church. This is the first one of the two. The second one comes later uh, when he's talking about the undisputed facts of the resurrection. But rather than just chastise them for poor function, he really wants to take and he wants to channel and focus their 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 minds into, hey, when you're function, when you're get, coming together, this is how you function. This is what it's really about, and it's not about you and making sure you got plenty of wine to drink or making sure that you have plenty of food to eat. When we come together, we're coming together for Jesus' sake. It's a cornerstone, <clears throat> cornerstone teaching of the Christian faith. Both of these are, but. Let's talk about this one. We'll talk about that one in a later sermon. What he's trying to do is he's trying to keep the focus for them on Jesus. Keep the focus on Christ. And whatever they were to do, whatever they were about to come together and partake in, or we could make it personal to us, and whatever we do, whatever, whenever we come together, it's all for the Lord's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. So if you were here on Friday night, that was for the Lord's sake. If you were here last night, that was for the Lord's sake. If you're here this morning, it's not to be a consumer, not that you shouldn't consume something, but it's primarily for the Lord's sake. You come because of what God, who God is and what he's done in your life and the fact that you're following him and the fact that we're called, as Hebrews says, not to forsake the assembling, but we're supposed to come together and we're supposed to do this together as one big family. But it's all for the Lord's sake. It's all for the Lord's sake. And it's all too easy to fall into the trap of, ah, I didn't like the music. Ah, I didn't get nothing from the sermon. Ah, it took too long. And we walk out frustrated. We walk out, you know, grumbling. We don't hear the voice of the Lord because the voice that rings most loudly in our ears is our own desires and wants. We're here for the Lord's sake. So we've got to keep the focus on Christ. We gather to pray. We gather to sing. We gather to study. We gather to eat. We gather to celebrate. And it's all for the sake of Christ. And so you could really say this statement uh, that really needs to be a banner over each of our hearts. It needs to be a motto for each of our lives. And it's all of Jesus for all of life. Like there's no second that's even going to rise up to, to try to challenge that as the number one statement for our lives. It's all of Jesus for all of our lives. Whatever we're doing, however we're getting together in whatever context, it's for Jesus' glory. It's for his sake. There's two reasons that I want to look at, one from the book of Philippians, the second one from the book of Colossians. Two reasons. The first reason is, is Jesus sacrifices everything. Jesus sacrifices everything. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about here when he focuses them in on the Lord's Supper. He says, hey, remember these things. 
Keep this paramount in your minds. Take this serious. This is the the body broken for us. This is the, the blood that was spilt for us. Jesus' sacrifice is everything. And Philippians chapter 2 starts off this way. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being, notice how they should relate to one another here, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, interest, but also for the interest of others. That's written to the book to the church in Philippi, but it very easily could have been inserted here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 5 in Philippians 2 says this, Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Here's the verses that I highlighted, the next four. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death to the cross. Now who is he obedient to? He's being obedient to the will of God the Father, absolutely. So you want to talk about a stellar example, the best example in all the cosmos for us to be good followers, simply being like Christ. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and those in heaven, and those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus sacrifices everything, and Jesus' sacrifice ultimately glorifies his Father. That's part of him being obedient. But it's also part of, in all of this, is also how he relates to his <laughs> to the father how we should relate to him but also how we should then function as we relate to one another that's up in the earlier verses so jesus sacrifices everything and the second part is very similar to it jesus is at the center of it all colossians Chapter 1, we'll start in verse 12, says this, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints <clears throat> in the light, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. This is a, a statement the Apostle Paul shares with the Colossian church about their position, their identity in in being a Christian, and what Jesus has done for them, Jesus at the center of everything, including their salvation, of course, and he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We rented that wood processor, and on the back end of that wood processor last week was a conveyor belt. Didn't have to, didn't have to touch a block of wood if you didn't need to, 
that conveyor belt just kept shooting wood, kept shooting wood. I thought about this verse and that. That's how Jesus is with new believers. He just keeps conveying them forward, propelling them forward. He's conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son, of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus does for each one of us. Uh, maybe you're sitting here. I wouldn't presume that this wouldn't be so, but maybe you've not taken that step of faith. Maybe you've not trusted Christ as your Savior. Uh, today's a good day to do that. Every day is a good day to do that. But today's a really good day if you've not believed and not trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you've not been conveyed into the kingdom by Jesus, today's a good day to jump on that conveyor belt, to receive the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins that only Jesus can provide, exactly what Paul, the same author, is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. He's talking about here in Colossians chapter 1. Let's read just a few more verses out of Colossians 1. Speaking of Jesus, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the prototype. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Here's that key verse. He's at the center of it all. All things were created through Him and for Him. If there's a single sentence that should wash out a consumer mentality in the church, it's this sentence right here, that all things were created through Him and for Him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. He created everything, and everything is for Him. Everything. Everything you own, everything you are, all that you are, all that we can see and experience here in this life, the Bible simply puts it, all things were created through Him and for Him. That should revamp any consumer mentality that we might have when it comes to Christianity. Verse 17 says, And He is before all things, and in, th in Him all things consist. So everything was created through Him and for Him, and He holds it all together. And He holds it all together. Now, He's not, you know, fumbling plates. He's not spinning plates in, in hopes that one of them doesn't go sideways. It's not that look. He holds it all together. And He is the head of the body. Oh, here's the relationship when it comes to order and leadership in the church. The huge verse right here, First in Colossians, here in verse 18, was a big factor in us revamping our bylaws and changing how we led here at this church 10 years ago. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's the firstborn over all creation, firstborn from the dead. He's the prototype for our resurrection. That is, in all things, he may have the preeminence. Jesus is at the center of it all. The centrality of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and our celebration of that symbolism 
should not be taken for granted. But that's exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. They were taking it for granted. They'd fallen into this trap that when you show up, you know, it's, it's all about what I can get. It's all about what I can get. It's all about what I can get. It wasn't about anybody else. It wasn't about Jesus. And apparently it wasn't about one another. It wasn't about saying, hey, you, 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 you boys, go ahead of me. Go ahead, go ahead in line. Don't go anywhere. But I'm just saying figuratively. No, go ahead. Right? Being gracious. Being loving. Being giving. Yeah, I really don't want you to go anywhere. I think we got that down. What I'm saying is, is their focus was all on themselves. The problem when our, we don't have a solid understanding of authority in our life, when we've not lived out the biblical principles of authority in our life, we stay, we, we have a tendency to grow up, become adults, you know, for men, might put on a little facial hair. You know, ladies, start wearing makeup, the whole thing. We grow up as adults, but inside, we still have that little kid mentality that if I don't get what I want, I'm going to throw a fit. That's the reality of where it is. We're just sometimes little kids inside. And sometimes those little kids inside, that, that understanding, that mentality, it comes out, and then we start throwing, you know, Little kid fits as adults. And it looks really weird. (laughs) Let's just be honest. We've all seen it. We've all experienced it. Maybe it's been you. It's been me. Like I'm not too, you know, I'm not too proud to say that it's been me. I can think of a particular time where uh, uh, Tammy and I were, Tammy saw the bad side of me shortly after we were married. We got married in March. And uh, that next Spring, early summer, we get into hay and season. And back then, we did all of our bailing at night. Everything was baled at night. And so, because <clears throat> you want a little dew on them, we had a small baler at the time, so you need a little dew, make the bales nice and all that. So we had been up multiple nights, baling hay, very little sleep. And uh, my poor wife, <laughs> I think about the story a few times. <laughs> my poor wife ran the tractor out of diesel. And my loving grandma was pretty particular about her tractor. It was her tractor. And uh, so I was filling a plastic gas can to go put diesel in the tractor. Now, I hadn't slept much in a few nights, so it's not an excuse for poor behavior. I'm just saying that this was my opportunity that I can think of that was uh, pretty extravagant, that I was throwing a toddler fit as a 24-year-old. And uh, anyway, my grandma comes out with a, with a one-gallon metal can and says, here, you have to use this. And I'm pu- pu- trying to fill a five-gallon jug thinking, I'm looking at that one-gallon gas can, and I thought, that's not even going to prime the, fuel, the injector pump on the tractor. Like, you need, like, several gallons. Anyway, so an uh, argument ensued between me and my grandmother. So both an opportunity to both be disrespectful and pitch a fit now is where I stand. Not one of my prouder moments, boys, so don't follow this example. But anyway, uh, my wife's sitting there, and, and I look over, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger, and I'm getting madder and madder. And I, took, I said, all right, Grandma, I'll take that gas can. And I took it from her, I put it on the ground, and I jumped on it and flattened it flat as a pancake. said, I'm not using that stupid can. Right? Then I looked at my wife, and her eyes were really big. 
Like I thought, is she practicing to go to the optometrist? That was not a proud moment for me. We did get the tractor running and everything turned out okay. I did apologize to my grandma. But the reality is, is that we all get tempted. We all get tempted to put ourselves at the center of it all rather than follow Christ. My needs, my wants, my desires, what I think is right. I'm going to die on this hill today if I don't get these things. And it really starts with not how we treat one another. That's just, the, that's just the display. That's just the symptom. It really starts with how am I honoring or dishonoring those that God has brought into my life? How am I treating one another? And that was, that was frankly, that was probably one of the most dishonoring things that I could do to my poor old grandma who was persistent in her personality as well i'll leave it at that but um you know not a proud moment it was a moment i look back with a lot of regret because here i was a new believer that had kind of fallen off of the relational wagon in the moment and was coming across like a complete jerk how was i displaying christ to her in that moment not good it wasn't good now, am I forgiven for that? Did she forgive me? Did the Lord forgive me? Absolutely. We have to come back to the basics. We have to come back to the basics. The reality is, is we have to keep Jesus at the center. We have to know that he is at the center. Paul goes on to say here, verse 27, therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup. I'm in 1 Corinthians 11, back in verse 27. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastised by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, or lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. That's the end of chapter 11. What he's really saying here at the last section is discern, be discerning of your own involvement. Be discerning of your own involvement. When we come together, we need to discern where we're at, who's around us, what the needs are, what the... Uh, <coughs> How's, you know, what opportunities do we have to be Christ-like right here in the moment? And there's plenty of warnings, lots of warning lights here in this passage. Don't participate in an unworthy manner. Examine yourselves. It says that a couple of different times. Let a man examine himself, so he eat the <coughs> and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul's not saying 
What he's saying here is he's saying, I don't want you to not participate. I want you to participate in the Lord's Supper. I want you to participate in communion. I want you to be involved, but don't do it in a flippant way. Don't do it in an unworthy manner, but examine yourself so that you can participate. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's the blindness side of just moving forward uh, without really examining your own heart, examining your own life, examining how your relationships are in the body. And he says there's a result here. There's a, there's a cause and effect that takes place between verses 27 and verses 30. The causes are the unworthiness, the unexamining, uh, and the not discerning of the Lord's body. And the effect then is in verse 30 where he says, for, the <clears throat> for this reason many are weak and sick and many sleep. Now when he says many are asleep, we'll take the last one first. When he says many are asleep, that's a, that's a euphemism for dead. Not that somebody's, you know, in the nursery, you know, taking a siesta or out on the couch, you know, head back, tonsils out and sleeping. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying there's an effect for, for not considering your own walk, not considering how you're relating well with others. And he says that judgment that comes to a person happens, and part of those judgments are weakness, sickness, and death. Uh, that's, hard to, uh, that's hard to swallow. I'll be honest with you. That's hard to swallow. But I have to also say that I've experienced, and a, a good friend of mine um, fell into this very trap and falsely prophesied, this is way back when we were new believers, or newly married and young, younger believers, and he would not repent and was filled with pride and was sure that he heard the Lord right and um, there's kind of a funny part. You're thinking, like, where's he going with this? Why is it so serious? He had a 50-50 chance of being right or wrong. It was simply come down to that odd, or those odds, because he, in a prayer meeting, had prophesied that this neighbor lady was going to have a little girl, and uh, she ended up giving birth to a little boy. Like I said, he had a 50-50 chance. Uh, and the reality was is that he wouldn't repent from that false word. He would not repent. And uh, I, be, I entered into the process a little later uh, after he had been confronted a couple times for his sin, for his false word, for his false prophecy. And uh, I was part of the, you know, bring one or two witnesses crowd. And so it went to that step, and then it went to the church leadership. And, uh, and his insistence, whatever drove his insistence, uh, kept driving him. Eight, month la eight months later, he died of a brain tumor. And I think of this verse, I think of this verse, but let a man examine himself, because he's not discerning the Lord's body. And that man would not slow down long enough to see what his false words were, I'll put it that way, because I, I don't believe they were from the Lord. I think that he was all about himself, and what he perceived was his own gift. And I'm not downing on being, having a gift of prophecy in any way. I'm just saying that 
whatever happened, it wasn't real. There's the evidence. But his insistence in, 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 in butting heads with people, both not coming under authority and also disrupt, disrupting in function the local fellowship, I believe wholeheartedly led to this guy's demise. Many are asleep. No, they're not taking a nap. They're dead. That's how serious God takes when the body doesn't function as it should, when we're more concerned with ourselves and our own perception of our own giftedness, our own personality, when we're puffed up with our own pride, these are the things that happen. It's a tough word to say. It's a tough word to live out. But, Paul says, if we would judge ourselves, if that guy simply would have taken an honest account of himself, he would not be judged. When we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord. He wouldn't come under the Lord's chastening, the Lord's discipline for not hearing him correctly. And the sad reality is, is then what happens is, is <clears throat> just as it reads, but when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord in order so, or that we may not be condemned with the world. If we're willing to examine ourselves, if we're willing to discern the Lord's body, if we're willing to be disciplined by the Lord, if we're willing to judge ourselves in our own walk and be realistic in these things, uh, we end up with that gap between us and where the world's going and wh where the world will end up. That's where we want to be as a church. That's where we want to be. So a simple encouragement then. The onus is on each believer to consider our own walk, our own participation in the body, to consider how our lives affect one another. That's the great statement in verse 33. Therefore, my brother, when you come together and eat, wait for one another. Be patient with one another. Perhaps the hardest lesson to learn in a me-centered culture is that one in verse 33, is to wait for one another. Uh, James, as we close, if the worship team would like to come on up, Daniel, Michelle, Bill, Sarah. We have to be patient with one another. James chapter 5 says this. It's a good exhortation on patience. And James, the ever straightforward writer, says, Therefore be patient, brethren. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives <clears throat> the early and the latter rain? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. We have to remember that in the big scheme of things, both in how we operate the church, how we lead the church, how God has established the order uh, of, of leadership in a church, and then how we function, that, that that is not an excuse to be impatient. We need to be patient. We need to be patient, wait on one another. We need to be patient as we wait for the Lord's return. It's a beautiful thing. It's an exciting thing. Uh, uh, we should... I don't know how you would pull this off. Ramp up a little uh, one another contest even in the church. Like how much better can we treat one another? 
Like you choose for yourselves. Like I don't even know how to qualify it. But as it's just kind of coming to me, like we should always, I'll put it this way, we should always be striving to treat one another better all the time. All the time. That we should treat one another better all the time. The temptation will always go to, to go the other way. We need to treat one another. And we need to be patient with one another. Uh, there's a wide, there, for probably every person in the room, there's, a, there's that much variety of opinions, thoughts, understandings. And that can be cause for division or can also be motivation for unity. We need to be patient with one another. We need to get to know one another. We need to continue to build relationships with one another. And we need to consider one another, which is what wasn't happening in the Corinthians church, but what we need to strive for and learn from their lesson, the hard words that the Apostle Paul says, hey, I'm not writing to praise you guys. I'm, I'm going to bring some smack. Right? I'm going to bring this little slap down. And he does. He chastises them for the way they were treating one another because it reflected the chaos that was going on in their fellowships. We need to be on guard against that type of chaos, that type of poor treatment of one another. We need to promote the good because that's what Jesus did for us. He's always promoting the best for his people. We need to join in in that regard. Let's worship together. If you would stand.